Birthday, August 1934. I walk to town. I don't look back over my shoulder. At the single grave holding Ma and my little brother. I'm trying not to look back at anything. Dust rises with each step. There's a greasy smell to the air. On either side of the road are the carcasses of jackrabbits, small birds, field mice, stretching out into the distance. My father stares out across his land, empty, but for a few withered stalks, like the tufts of an old man's head. I don't know if he thinks more of Ma or the wheat that used to grow here. There is barely a blade of grass swaying in the stinging wind. There are only these lumps of flesh that once were hands long enough to span octaves, swinging at my sides. I come up quiet. I sit behind Arley, Wanderdale's house, where no one can see me, and lean my head back, and close my eyes, and listen to Arley play. August 1934, Roots. President Roosevelt tells us to plant trees. Trees will break the wind, he says. Trees will end the drought. The animals can take shelter there. Children can take shelter. Trees have roots, he says. They hold on to the land. That's good advice, but I'm not sure he understands the problem. Trees have never been at home here. They're just not meant to be here. Maybe none of us are meant to be here. Only the prairie grass and the hawks. My father will stay no matter what. He's stubborn as sod. He and the land have a hold on each other. But what about me? August 1934. The empty spaces. I don't know my father anymore. He sits across from me. He looks like my father. He chews his food like my father. He brushes his dusty hair back like my father. But he is a stranger. I'm awkward with him and irritated, and I want to be alone. But I'm terrified of being alone. We are both changing. We are shifting to fill the empty spaces left by Ma. I keep my raw and stinging hands behind my back when he comes near because he stares when he sees them. September 1934. The hole. The heat from the cook stove hurts my burns and the salt. The water and the dust hurt too. I spend all my time in pain and my father spends his time on the side of the house digging a hole 40 feet by 6 feet. 6 feet deep. I think he's digging the pond to feed off the windmill. The one Ma wanted. But he doesn't say. He just digs. He sends me to the train yard to gather boards. Boards that once were boxcars but are now junk. I bring them back, careful of the scabs and the raw sores on my bare hands. I don't know what he needs boards for. He doesn't tell me. When he's not digging, or in the hole, or digging, he works on the windmill, replacing the parts that keep it from turning. People stop by and watch. They think my father's crazy, digging such a big hole. I think he's crazy too. The water will seep back into the earth. It'll never stay put for any old pond. But my father has thought through all that and he's digging away. I think to talk to Ma about it, and then I remember. I can almost forgive him the taking of Ma's money. I can almost forgive him his night in Gaiman getting drunk. But as long as I live, no matter how big a hole he digs, I cannot forgive him that pail of kerosene left by the side of the stove. September 1934, Kilawe, a volcano erupted in Ha, Kilawe. It threw huge chunks into the air. The ground shook and smoke choked everything in its past. In its path, sounds a little like a dust storm. September 1934, boxes. In my closet are two boxes the gatherings of my life papers, school drawings, a broken hairpin, a dress from my baby days, my first lock of hair, a tiny basket woven from prairie grass, a doll with china head, 
a pink ball, three dozen marbles, a fan from Baxter's funeral home, my baby teeth in a glass jar, a torn map of the world, two candy wrappers, a thousand things I haven't looked at in years. I kept promising to go through the boxes with Ma and get rid of what I didn't need, but I never got to it and now my hands hurt, and I haven't got the heart. September 1934, Night Bloomer. Mrs. Brown's serious plant bloomed on Saturday night. She sent word after promising I could come see it. I rubbed my gritty eyes with swollen hands. My stomach grizzled as I made my way through the dark to her house. Ma wouldn't have let me go at all. My father just stood in the doorway and watched me leave. I was al it was almost three in the morning when I got there. A small crowd stood around. Mrs. Brown said, the blossoms opened at midnight, big as a dinner plate. It took only moments to unfold. How can such a flower find a way to bloom in this drought, in this wind? It blossomed at night, when the sun couldn't scorch it, and the wind was quiet, and there might have been a sip of dew to freshen it. I couldn't watch at dawn, which the newer, touched by the first finger of morning light, wilted and died. I couldn't watch, as the tender petals burned up in the sun. September 1934, The Path of Our Sorrow Mrs. Freeland said, During the Great War, we fed the world. We couldn't grow enough wheat to fill all the bellies. The price the world paid for our wheat was so high it swelled our wallets and our heads, and we bought bigger tractors, more acres, until we had mortgages and rent and bills beyond reason, but we all felt so useful we didn't notice. Then the war ended, and before long, Europe didn't need our wheat anymore. They couldn't grow their own, or they could grow their own, but we needed Europe's money to pay our mortgage, our rent, our bills. We squeezed more cattle, more sheep onto less land, and they grazed down the stubble till they reached root, and the price of wheat kept dropping, and so we had to grow more bushels to make the same amount of money we made before to pay all that quit for all that equipment, all that land, and all the more sod we plowed up, the drier things got, because the water that used to collect there, under the grass, biding its time, keeping things alive through the dry spells, wasn't there anymore. Without the sod, the water vanished, the soil turned to dust, until the wind took it, lifting it up and carrying it away. Such a sorrow doesn't come suddenly. There are thousands steps, there are thousands steps to take before you get there. But now, sorrow climbs up our front steps, big as Texas, as we didn't even see it coming, even though it'd been making its way straight for us all along. September 1934, autumn, hired work. My father hired on at wireless power on Tuesday, excavating for towers he said i'm good at digging and everyone knows about our hole knows he's telling the truth he might as well earn a couple dollars it doesn't look good for the winter crop earning some cash will make him feel better i don't think he'll drink it up he hasn't done that since ma it's hard to believe i once brought money in too even if it was just a dime now and then for playing piano now i can't hardly stay in the same room with one especially ma's October 1934. Almost rain. It almost rained Saturday. The clouds hung over the farm. The air felt thick. It smelled like rain. In town, the sidewalks got damp. That was all. November 1934. Those hands. The Wildcats started practice this week. Coach Albright used to say I could play for the team. You've got what it takes, Billy Joe. Look at the size of those hands, he'd say. Look at how tall. I'd tell him, just because I'm tall doesn't mean I can play basketball or even want to. But he'd say I should play anyway. Coach Albright didn't say anything about me, to me, about basketball this year. I haven't gotten any shorter. It's because of my hands. My father used to say, why not put those hands to good use? He doesn't say anything about those hands anymore. 
Only Arlie Wanderdale talks about them and how they used or could play piano again if I would only try. November 1934. Real snow. The dust stopped and it snowed. Real snow. Dreamy Christmas snow. Gentle. Nothing blowing. Such calm like after a fever. Wet clinging to the earth, melting into the dirt, snow. Oh, the grass, and the wheat, and the cattle, and the rabbits, and my father will be happy. November, November 1934, Dance Review. Vera Wanderdale is putting on a dance review at the palace, and Arlie asked if I'd play a number with the Black Mesa Boys. It's hard, coming on to Christmas, just me and my father with no ma and no little brother. I don't really feel like doing anything, still, I told Arlie I would try just because it looked like it meant a lot to him. He said he'd be dancing then, so he needed a piano player, and Mad Dog would be singing. And he knew how I'd just love to be connected with anything Mad Dog's doing. The costumes Vera ordered come all the way from the city, she said. Special. The latest cuts. I wish I could go with her to pick them up. During rehearsals, Mad Dog comes off the stage after his numbers and stands by the piano. He doesn't like, he doesn't look at me like, I'm a poor motherless thing. He doesn't stare at my deformed hands. He looks at me like I am someone he knows, someone named Billy Joe Kelby. I'm grateful for that, especially considering how bad I'm playing. December 1934, Mad Dog's Tale. Mad Dog is surrounded by girls. They ask him how he got his name. He says, it's not because I'm wild or a crazy untamed boy, but because 14 years ago when I was two, I would bite anything I could catch hold of. My ma, my brother, Doc Rice, even Reverend Bingham. So my father named me Mad Dog, and it stuck. When I got home, I asked my father if he knew Mad Dog's real name. He looks at me like I'm talking in another language. Ma could have told me. December 1934, Art Exhibit. We had an art exhibit last week in the basement of the courthouse to benefit the library. Price of admission was one book or 10 cents. I paid 10 cents the first time, but they let me in the second time and third times for free. That was awful kind, since I didn't have another dime, and I couldn't bring myself to hand over Ma's book of poetry from the shelf over the piano. It was something, really something, to see the oil paintings, the watercolors, the pastels and charcoals. There were pictures of the panhandle in old days with the grass blowing and wolves. There was a painting of a woman getting dressed in a room of curtains and a drawing of, rail of a railroad station with a garden out the front and a sketch of a little girl holding an enormous cat in her lap. But now the exhibit is gone, the paintings stored away in spare rooms or locked up, where no one can see them. I feel such hunger, I see such things, and such an anger. Because I can't. December 1934. Winter 1935. State tests again. Miss Freeland said our grade topped the entire class in the entire state of Oklahoma on the state tests, again, 24 points higher than the state average. Wish I could run home and tell Ma and see her nod and hear her say, I knew you could. It would be enough this time. January 1935. Christmas dinner without the cranberry sauce. Miss Freeland was my Ma at the school Christmas dinner. I thought I'd be the only one without a real Ma. But two other motherless girls came. We served turkey, chestnut dressing, sweet potatoes, and brown gravy, made it all ourselves, and it came out pretty good. Better than the Christmas dinner I made for my father at home, where we sat at the table, silent, just the two of us. Being there without Ma, without the baby, would have been so bad. 
wouldn't have been so bad if I'd just remembered the cranberry sauce. My father loved Ma's special cranberry sauce, but she never showed me how to make it. January 1935, driving the cows. Dust piles up like snow across the prairie, dunes leaning against fences, mountains of dust pushing over barns. Joe de la Flor can't afford to feed his cows. Can't afford to sell them. County Agent Dewey comes, takes the cows behind the barn and shoots them. Too hard to watch their lungs clog with dust, like our chickens suffocated. Better to let the government take them, than suffer the sight of their bony hides sinking down into the earth. Joe de la Flor rides the range. Come spring, he'll gather a Russian thistle, pulling the plant while it's still green and young, before the prickles form, before it breaks free to tumble across the plains. He gathers thistle to feed what's left of his cattle, his bone-thin cattle, cattle he drives away from the dried-up Beaver River to where Cimarron still runs, pushing the herd across the breaks where they might last another week, maybe two, until it rains. January 1935, first rain, Sunday night. I stretch my legs in my iron bed under the roof. I place a wet cloth over my nose to keep from breathing dust and wipe the grime tracings around my mouth and shiver, thinking of Ma. I am kept company by the sound of my heart drumming. Restless, I tangle in the dusty sheets, sending the sand flying, cursing the grit against my skin, between my teeth, under my lids, swearing I'll leave this forsaken place. I hear the first drops, like the tapping of a stranger at the door of a dream. The rain changes everything. It strokes the roof, streaking the dusty tin, ponging a concert of rain notes, spilling from gutters, gushing through gullies, soaking into the thirsty earth outside. Monday morning dawns, cloaked in mist. I button into my dress, slip on my sweater, and push my way off the porch, sticking my face into the fog, into the most moist skin of the fog. The sound of dripping surrounds me as I walk to town, soaked to my underwear. I can't bear to go through the schoolhouse door. I want only to stand in the rain. Monday afternoon, Joe de la Flor brushes mud from his horse. Mr. Kincannon hires my father to pull his olds out of the muck on Route 64, and later when the clouds lift. The farmers surveying their fields nod their heads as the frail stalks revive. Everyone, everything, grateful for this moment, free of the weight of dust. January 1935. Hayden P. Nye. Hayden P. Nye died this week. I knew him to wave. He liked the way I play, played piano. The newspaper said when Hayden first came, he could only see grass, grass and wild horses and wolves roaming. Then folks moved in and sod got busted and bushels of wheat turned the plains to gold and Hayden Penai grabbed the Oklahoma panhandle in its fist and held on. By the time the railroad came in on land, Hayden sold them. The buffalo and the wild horses had gone. Some years, Hayden and I saw the sun dry up his crop, saw the grasshoppers chew it down. But then came years of rain, and the wheat thrived, and his pockets filled, and his big laugh came easy. They buried Hayden and I on his land. Busted more sod to lay down his bones. Will they sow wheat on his grave, where the buffalo once grazed? January 1935, scrubbing up dust. Walking past the Crystal Hotel, I saw Jim Martin down on his knees. He was scraping up mud that had dried to crust. After the rain mixed with dust Sunday last, when I got home, I took a good look at the steps on the porch and the window, and I saw them with Ma's eyes and thought about how she'd been haunting me. I thought about Ma, who would have washed clothes, clothes beaten furniture, aired rugs, scrubbed floors, down on her knees, brush in hand, breaking that mud, like the farmer's break sod, always watching over her shoulder for the next duster to roll in. 
my stubborn ma. She'd be doing it all with my brother Franklin to tend to. She never could stand a mess. My father doesn't notice the dried mud. Least, he never tells me. Not that he tells me much of anything these days. With ma gone, if the mud is to be busted, the job falls to me. It isn't the work I hate, the knuckle-breaking work of beating mud out of every blessed thing. But every day my fingers and hands ache so bad, I think I should just let them rest. Let the dust rest. Let the word rest. World rest. But I can't let leave it rest on account of Ma's haunting. January 1935, outlined by dust. My father stares at me while I sit across from him at the table, while I wash dishes in the basin, my back to him, the picked and festered bits of my hands in agony. He stares at me as I empty the wash af water at the roots of Ma's apple trees. He spends long days digging for the electric train folks when they can use him, or working here, nursing along the wheat, what's, what there is of it, or digging the pond. He sings sometimes under his breath. Even now, even after so much sorrow, he sings a man's song, deep with what has happened to us. It isn't, it doesn't swing lightly, the way Ma's voice did, the way Miss Freeland's voice does, the way Mad Dog sings. My father's voice starts and stops like a car short of gas like an engine choked with dust, but then he clears his throat and the song starts up again. He rubs his eyes the way I do, with his palms out. Ma never did that. And he wipes the milk from his upper lip the same as me, with his thumb and forefinger. Ma never did that either. We don't talk much. My father never was a talker. Ma's dying hasn't changed that. I guess he gets a sound out of him with the song he sings. I can't help thinking how it is for him without Ma. Waking up alone, only his shape left in the bed outlined by dust. He always smelled a little like her. First thing in the morning, when he left her in bed and went out to do the milking, she'd scuff in the kitchen a few minutes later, bleary-eyed, to start breakfast. I don't think she was ever really meant for farm life. I think once she had bigger dreams, but she made herself over to fit my father. Now he smells of dust and coffee, tobacco and cows. None of the musky women. Woman smell left that... None of that musky woman smell left that was Ma. He stares at me. Maybe... He's looking for Ma. He won't find her. I look like him. I stand like him. I walk across the kitchen floor with that long-legged walk of his. I can't make myself over the way Ma did. And yet, if I could look in the mirror and see her in my face, if I could somehow know that Ma and baby Franklin lived in me, but it can't be. I'm my father's daughter.